grab a seat real quick. Uh, so if you're new here, my name's Gabe. I'm one of the elders. And, and before we really get started, we have a pretty major announcement to roll out. Um, last year, last January, I guess it was in December, beginning of January, our elders went away on a retreat and we kind of prayed and dreamed about what God was asking us to do. And then the rest of the leadership came up and joined us with it. And so what we did, we took a, what would we want to be in 10 years? And then in light of that, three years in light of that, one year in light of that 90 days. Um, and so as we were talking, as the elders were talking, um, there's a lake that was out front, the Long Mountain Retreat Center, and there's a lake that was out front. And there's a quote that I think grasped all of our hearts, which was our desire was not to be a lake church where people came and we just tried to get the lake bigger and bigger. But we really wanted to be a river church where we're constantly sending people out. And so as we're comparing that to Matthew 28, the Great Commission, Acts 1-8, um, what we see all throughout the New Testament of the early church, um, the question started to kind of wrestle in our mind, what would happen if we actually took uh, the command to make disciples seriously? What, what would that look like, especially in a college context? Um, what, what would be the fruit of that? And so um, at that retreat center, at the retreat, we as elders decided in 10 years um, that if we actually did this, if we multiplied leaders like Jesus did through discipleship, uh, within the next 10 years, it would be uh, nothing for us to grow a network of 10 church plants within college towns in the southeast. Um, that if we were raising up and sending out, that we would grow, I mean, it should be, the math would make sense, right? So then we took a step back and we said, okay, what would happen in three years to help us to get to 10 years? Um, and we said, well, by three years, we'd like to have three churches a part of this network. And granted, that was a year and a half ago. No, a year and two months ago. And then we came back one year, and we came back 90 days. Um, and so part of what we're working towards, I mean, the, the leadership pipeline came out of that. Raise your hand if you're part of the leadership pipeline. So we've got eight students right now. Um, uh, applications are due May 1st. If you want to get into the pipeline for next year, um, just come talk to me or, or anybody that just raised their hand. They can give you the information. Uh, but what we were trying to do is to raise up new people, men and women, to then go move to towns to plant churches all across college communities in the southeast. And we got to see that last August when Kyle and Jen, but then also we sent Mackenzie and um, uh, don't listen to this podcast, girl, because I'm forgetting your name. Harkins, Madeline, Madeline. She's not here, so she doesn't know. Um, podcast can get deleted. So we sent Madeline out to help plant that church, um, and it was fantastic. But, but right around the same time that we were gearing up to send Milledgeville out, um, I get a random phone call from a guy named Brandon Nichols. And Brandon and I go way back in um, youth ministry days when we were both acting dumb and putting putting on our face to be funny. Um, and so we reconnected. He was planning a church in Kennesaw. They were about two years old at the time. And so we started hanging out a little bit, but we were so deep into Milledgeville trying to figure out what we were doing that I said, hey, man, like, let's, let's catch up a little bit later. He actually came to Dahlonega. I took him to the R Ranch, which is a campground in the mountains, and he thought I was taking him to leave him for dead because um, Kennesaw and Dahlonega are not the same. And so we kept driving in the mountains. He's like, bro, what did I do? Like, I was just coming to visit. Um, so the elders started the praying process, their elders started the praying process, and we started dreaming, um, what would it look like if we adopted their church, Mercy Hill, into the Branch Church Network? Um, what would it look like if we now had three churches that, in realistic terms, in the next three to five years, we all plant one church, so then three years we'd have six churches, and then in three to five years we did that again, so that by eight years, seven to eight years, we'd have 18 churches. So the 10 and 10 goal would be destroyed, that we would have 18 churches in the next 10 years, not 10. And so as our elders got together, we uh, spent time together. I went and visited Mercy Hill, um, and it was just, from day one, it, was, it made sense. You could tell the Lord was in it. Um, the elders synced together when I went and worshiped with them, my wife and I. Um, they are identical to us. So um, this morning is the official announcement that Mercy Hill and Brandon Nichols and his wife, Kristen, are coming to join on with the branch network so that we can plant churches faster that plant churches faster. Um, so now within the network, we have the branch Salonica, we have the branch Milledgeville, and we have Mercy Hill in Kennesaw, which is fantastic. So, yeah. And this has nothing to do with us and what we're doing, but we have a core conviction to make disciples and send them out, and this is what's happening. So I want to introduce Brandon and his wife real quick, and then Brandon's actually going to be the one preaching for us this morning. So Brandon, why don't you guys come on up? Woo! 
He's got a beard and flannel. Of course he's a church planner. <laughs> so this is our family. Brandon, I'll let you kind of give a little rundown of who's standing here. All right. Hey, I'm Brandon. Good to meet you guys. Yeah, so this is my wife, Kristen. Uh, this is Hudson. He's 10, loves soccer. Uh, this is Abigail. She's 7, also loves soccer. And um, yeah, this is our family. Yeah, y'all give it up for the Nichols. So I, I, in a moment, Brandon's going to preach for us, and I want to pray over them real fast. But here's what we're going to do at the end, because I know there might be some questions. And um, our number is going to be on the screen. Um, throughout the service, if Brandon gets really boring, just start texting in questions. Um, but seriously, at the end, we're going to have a little Q&A just to talk about what this looks like for the network, what this means for us, kind of our visions for the future. Um, like I said earlier, it's, it's not unfathomable. I mean, there's things in the works that we could easily plant three churches in the next three years uh, because we're all joining forces together. This isn't one church doing one thing, but this is three churches for the sake of the gospel and the loss within college communities in Georgia rallying together to further this process quicker. So um, if you have any questions, um, the number will be on the screen now. Boom, close. Um, <laughs> so you can, we can talk about that at the end, but let me pray over these guys. There it is. Let me pray over these guys, and then I will pass it off to Brandon. Um, Father, we're so grateful for what you're doing here. Um, God, that this is, no, uh, this is no evidence of us working hard, Father. This is 100% your providence doing what you do. And Father, there's no mistake that uh, Kyle was here and now he's getting ready to preach in Milledgeville. There's no mistake that these guys came up to Kennesaw to plant. And Father, there, there's no accidents happening in this process. And God, so we're humbled to see how quickly your hand is moving. Uh, Father, and we just pray that there'd be no sin, there'd be no pride, there'd be no selfish ambition that would slow that down. Um, God, for the sake of the gospel, we would make disciples that make disciples and send them out to plant churches. That our ultimate goal isn't to plant churches, but it's to make disciples. And through that process, we'll see many churches be planted. So God, thank you for this family. Thank you for the sacrifice they made moving from Warner Robins to Kennesaw. And uh, Father, thank you for the success that they've seen so far. And God, we're just asking big things for the future. It's your name we pray. Amen. You guys give it up for the Nichols and Brandon. All right, good morning. It's great to be with you guys. Uh, so excited to finally be with the branch. Gabe and I have been talking, uh, I guess, off and on for, uh, for a year, and so it's good, good to be here on a, on a Sunday morning. If you've got a Bible, you can turn to Luke chapter 22. We're just going to pick up where you guys left off uh, last week in Luke chapter 22. I know you're in a series uh, looking at several key meals in the book of Luke, and, uh, and so all of this stuff that happens uh, in, the chapter, in chapter 22 happens around a, uh, a key meal, uh, the Lord's Supper. So um, I, I don't know if you've ever experienced failure before. Uh, I don't know if you've ever experienced just embarrassing, public, gut-wrenching failure before. Uh, but it's the worst, right? It's the absolute worst. So I remember the first time I remember just absolutely failing and just feeling this terrible feeling in the pit of my stomach afterwards was when I was in the seventh grade at Northside Middle School, home of the J-E-T-S, Jets, 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 uh, the Mighty Mighty Jets. You probably have heard of us before. Uh, so we won all of three football games uh, that season on the seventh grade team. And uh, I was uh, about 4'11", and I weighed about 91 pounds. Uh, and, uh, and so you could tell I had the makings of an excellent football player. I wish I could say I was super fast. I was not. Uh, I was just available, and so I was there. On my team uh, was a guy named Anthony Sessions. Now, that name might not mean a lot to you, but it means a lot in Warner Robins, Georgia. Because Anthony Sessions uh, played at Northside Middle School, home of the JTS Jets, 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 and then played linebacker and running back at Northside High School, home of the Eagles, and then played linebacker at the University of Tennessee, and then played for the Washington Redskins. And he was on my middle school football team, playing running back in a scrimmage, and uh, I was safety. Um, yeah, it makes no sense. So I'm the last line of defense. I'm 4'11", not even five feet tall, 91 pounds. Anthony Sessions already has his man body, right? Like he's already fully matured. I'm a late bloomer. He's an early bloomer. You get the picture. 
And so last line of defense, sure enough, scrimmage Anthony Sessions comes busting through the line. The linebackers run away from him because they're intelligent. And me, like fourth string safety, I'm like, I am about to mess this joker up. Today is the day that I prove myself to everybody here. I'm ready. I'm prepared. I know exactly what to do. I broke down. I'm, I know Anthony Sessions and I are on for a major collision, and I'm winning this time. The next thing I remember <laughs> is the sky. And my friend Kevin Fielder standing over me going, Oh my gosh, dude, are you okay? <laughs> Evidently, I was so excited that when we actually collided, I was moving forward like a man, and then quickly was moving backwards, still running in the air. <laughs> and I landed flat on my back, and I walk, helmet off, head down, back to the sideline, and all of my buddies are just ripping on me. Right? I mean, just a total failure. I don't know if you've had a moment like that where everything just came apart, where you thought you were ready, you thought you were prepared, you thought this is going to be one of my greatest moments of success, then it quickly turned into failure. Maybe it was chemistry too. And you, and you had to hang your head on the way home to tell mom and dad that evidently D's don't equal degrees. And you're going to have to be retaking that class again, right? Uh, maybe it was in a relationship. Maybe it was at, at work where you're employed. It could have been a, a variety of different places, but you just experience that kind of failure. What we're going to see in our text today is that sort of moment where a guy thinks he is ready for success and instead experiences absolute failure. Let's pick up together. Remember, this has happened in the context of the Lord's Supper. In fact, the disciples are with Jesus, and they've just started arguing about who the greatest is again because those guys can't quite get it together. They don't see that Jesus is actually the greatest. Um, and so right after that argument, we're going to pick up in verse 31. This is Jesus speaking. He says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. And Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny me three times, or until you deny three times that you know me. And so Jesus, while this debate about who's the greatest is going on, pulls Peter to the side. He said, I want you to know what's about to happen. You're about to be shaken. You're about to be tried. And you're going to deny me. Can you imagine that moment? Peter's like, no, I'm ready. I'm really ready. Well, then you probably know the story. Jesus and his disciples, after the Lord's Supper, head to the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus is in prayer. The disciples are supposed to be in prayer, but they can't quite catch up uh, to that program either. Judas shows up with some servants of the high priest and some hired muscle, and they arrest Jesus, and they take him to the high priest's house to stand trial. And all the disciples, except for two, scatter. Peter and John. John, we know from his gospel, is actually a friend of someone in the, in the home of the high priest, and so he's able to get access, and he brings Peter along. That's where we pick up in verse 54. So then they seized him, that's Jesus, and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. Peter was following at a distance, and when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat down in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man was with him. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I, I don't know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, You also were one of them. And Peter said, Man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, Certainly this man was also with them, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. 
And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. What a moment. Peter thought he was ready. He thought he was ready for jail. He thought he was ready for death. He thought he would be the one who would follow Jesus anyway. But before the night is even over, he ends up denying Jesus three times. And then this uh, detail that's not in the other Gospels, that after the third denial, Jesus looks over. They make eye contact. And in that moment, Peter's filled with a, a flood of emotions. He's overcome with grief and weeps in response to what he's done. Now, here's what we're not going to do. All right, I'm going to make a deal with you today. Here's what we're not going to do. Because some of you are already prepared for this. You've heard this story before. You've heard it taught before. Here's what you're prepared for. You're prepared for a very youth group version of this where I make you feel bad because you haven't talked to Jesus, about Jesus with the person in your physics class, right? Because you were at a party this past weekend and somebody said something and you thought this is an opportunity for me to talk about Jesus and you kept your mouth shut. And what you are loaded up for right now is for me to go full bore into you, making you feel guilty, trying to elicit the emotion of weeping in you because of something that happened two weeks ago. Can I make you a promise? That's not what we're about to do. Because I think this story holds so much more than that. So much more meaningful than that. And there's a lot of grace in this story. Here's where we start. Verse 31, when Jesus pulls Simon aside and says, Behold, Satan has demanded to have you. It's hard to realize this in English because not everybody is from the South, but that use actually second person plural. And so when he says Satan demanded to have you, he means y'all. He's saying, Peter, you see these guys who've been fighting about who the greatest is? All you disciples? All y'all, Satan wants to sift you like wheat. So what he means is Satan, who is the deceiver, the enemy. I, I want to be very clear in case you maybe misunderstand this. We're not dualists. We don't believe that Satan has equal power uh, as God, right? We're not good and evil or uh, opposing forces with equal, uh, equal power. That's not what we believe. You see that Satan has to come to God and demand. Nothing happens in the world except for under the sovereignty of God. And even the enemy is subservient to God. And so he demands to have all of the disciples. He wants to sift them like wheat. It's a process of shaking wheat through a, a metal grate so you separate the grain from the chaff. What's good from what's bad. And what we see is this attack, Jesus says, is that he's praying that your faith would not fail, that Satan wants to attack their faith, their trust in Jesus. And the way that he's going to do that is he's going to separate them, pull them apart. It's a, a scene almost reminiscent of the book of Job. I don't know if you remember this story, but Satan comes to God and says, uh, hey, I, I, I think, uh, man, we're, we're, I want to get to work. And God says, well, how about my man Job? He's my dude. He's great. And Satan says, oh, come on, man. Job's totally blessed. You're giving him everything that he could ever want. Of course he's following you. Let me, let me mess with that. Well, it's a similar scene here. God says, hey, have you considered the disciples? Peter, James, and John. And Satan responds, oh, man, they've been walking with Jesus for three years. Of course they're following him. I'll tell you what, why don't you let me change the equation a little bit? Why don't you let me pull Jesus out of that? Why don't you let me turn them against each other? Why don't you let me create conflict? We'll see what happens then. So, Satan has demanded, Jesus says, to uh, sift, separate the disciples from each other. But then he looks at Peter, right? Verse 32. He says, I prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned again, you strengthen your brothers. That's got to be an amazing moment where Jesus himself says, I am praying for you. Now, here's the thing. The you there is second person singular. So Jesus doesn't say, I'm praying for all of these guys. Now, maybe he is, but he specifically says to Peter, I'm praying for you. 
the hope to defend against you scattering, the hope to defend against a loss of faith is this, I'm going to pray for you, and I'm going to do a work in you. He prays this, that his faith would not fail, that his faith, his trust in Jesus would not fail. No matter how he's sifted, no matter how he's shaken, that his trust in Jesus would not waver. Now, here's where we run into a problem, a theological quandary. If you're from where I'm from, we just call it a pickle. It's a tight spot. Because we know from later on in the passage what happens. Peter fails. So we have two choices. We can either come to the conclusion that Jesus' prayers are ineffective, that somehow in him talking to himself, wires get crossed and someone didn't hear the message correctly. Maybe Jesus' prayers aren't powerful. Now that would put us in a pretty tight spot. Or we have another choice, which is perhaps the single failure in the courtyard by Peter, Jesus doesn't see as a failure in the same way that we do. That perhaps Jesus is using this moment in order to prepare Peter for something greater. And this experience in the courtyard is what is going to give Peter an unfailing faith. So Jesus prays, Peter, I'm going to pray that your faith doesn't fail. And then when you turn again, it's an interesting word, right? It's not the word most often used to describe repentance in the New Testament, but it is a word that Luke uses often to describe turning again to God. Often there's a word that means changing your mind. This one means actually changing your entire orientation. Looking again to Christ. This would be interesting for Jesus to pray that his faith would not fail. Consider his denial a complete failure. And then tell him that he's going to turn again. Does that make sense? When you really think about the way it's constructed, it's interesting. I'm going to pray your faith doesn't fail. I know in this moment you will, will fail, but there's something about this idea of turning again after failure, after sin, after shortcoming, turning again to Christ that Jesus says is an unfailing faith. We could say this, an unfailing faith is not marked by perfect obedience, but by constant repentance. That this faith that the Bible describes does not mean that I am perfect. That's Jesus. If that were the case, if I could perfectly obey, that's what this unfailing faith looked like, was perfect obedience, then I wouldn't need faith to begin with. Because I would be what Galatians tells us is impossible. What does Galatians say? We know no one is set in a right relationship with God by obedience to the law. But by what? Faith. If I, if this product of an unfailing faith was perfect obedience all the time, I wouldn't need the cross. I wouldn't need Jesus' vicarious death for me in my place. I wouldn't need the resurrection. I wouldn't need him to raise a life in order to give me a new life. I wouldn't need any of that. I would be able to accomplish it on my own without faith. But faith is trusting Christ is turning from my sin and turning to Jesus anew. Faith is this act of repentance, trusting Christ again. Spurgeon says uh, this about repentance. He says to repent is to change your mind about sin and Christ and all the great things of God. There is a sorrow implied in this, but the main point is the turning of the heart from sin to Christ. If there is this turning, you have the essence of true repentance, even though no alarm and despair should ever have cast their shadow upon your mind. Did you hear what he just said? Repentance and faith is turning from sin into trusting Jesus, even if you don't feel bad about it. Even if you don't experience sorrow even if there's no alarm or despair. 
that repentance isn't the weeping. The weeping is the sorrow that happens before repentance. Repentance is in the turning and trusting Jesus, trusting Christ. What happened in Peter's life is a failure, one that Jesus predicted. But what we see through the rest of the story and into the book of Acts, what leads Peter into a flourishing relationship with Jesus is that he repents. He doesn't stay weeping. He doesn't stall out in despair. Now, Judas, on the other hand, does. Never trust Christ. Despair overcomes him. But Peter weeps here and then turns again and trusts Christ. And this is actually how we get to obedience. I don't want to leave you confused that obedience isn't important because it is. But actually the way that we increase our obedience to Jesus is by trusting Jesus more. Is this act of repentance. And the more I repent and come back to Christ, the more I obey him. Some of you guys are totally stalled out here totally stalled out here uh, because you mess up. You sin, you're not perfect. And all you think about from last Friday night throughout this week was what you did. And it consumes you. And you think, how could Jesus love someone like me? How could Jesus accept someone like me? How could I follow Jesus when I look back and see what I have done? You turn and trust Jesus. And what happens is the more I repent and trust Christ, the more I see that trusting Christ leads me to a better life than what I get stuck in over here. And I trust Christ anew. And I feel the work of the Holy Spirit alive in my heart. And then when it comes time for me to make that choice again, I go, whoa, 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 whoa. I could trust in other people's acceptance. I could trust in uh, achievement. I could trust in success. Or I could remember that trusting Jesus is infinitely better, so I'm going to trust him here. And what happens is my, uh, your, your disobedience, this one thing that keeps holding you up, it just starts getting a little further apart and a little further apart and a little further apart because you're learning to obey by turning, repenting, and trusting Christ. This faith that doesn't fail is not marked by perfect obedience. It's marked by constant repentance. Luther, his 95 thesis that he nails on the Wittenberg church wall, sparks a Protestant reformation. Do you know what number one is? Number one, he said this, When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he willed that the entire life of believers be one of repentance. One of turning again, constantly from sin to Jesus. See, this is the mark of a Christian. It's not a voting block. It's not a cheesy t-shirt. It's not what organization you belong to. It's not what church you go to. The mark of believers is constant (laughs) repentance. So what does this sort of faith look like and how do we put it into practice? I think there's some things in the text from Peter that we can learn. Obviously, uh, we have Uh, The advantage of knowing that this leads to the cross, and the cross, Jesus dies on the cross for us in our place. Something that Peter hadn't quite understood, but I think there's a lot here for us. So there's three movements that need to happen in your life and my life for us to embrace this sort of faith and this sort of repentance. Here's number one. We move from boasting to humility. You remember in verse 33, what did Peter say? I am ready. Let's do this. Anthony Sessions, no thing for me, man. High priest, hired muscle, guard, prison time, death, no thing for me. I am ready. He felt confident in his own ability, even so confident that when Jesus said, hey man, this is going to be rough, he's like, nah, I got this. You have to be pretty prideful to look back at Jesus and go, nah, I'm good. Can you imagine Jesus like, hey man, remember that thing where you tried to walk on water? You sure you... You, you sure we want to get into this, I'm ready, that kind of thing now? And that's Peter, and that's some of us. I got this. I'm ready. Whatever life throws at me, whatever happens in the dorm, 
whatever happens with my friends, whatever happens in this relationship, I am good to go. But what we see is Peter has to move to a place of humility. Verse 57, a servant girl has come to him and said, a servant girl. John tells us it's the girl that let him in the door. So the servant girl comes and says, hey, you're one of the guys with Jesus. Maybe she saw him Palm Sunday, walking, big crowd, he's in the parade. Maybe she had seen Jesus teach at some point, but somehow she recognized him. And Peter, ready, boastful Peter says, I don't even know him. Ready to die for him. So I, I don't even know him. And that in Peter, that process started to birth humility. And we see him later humbly leading the church. We know that he eventually did lay down his life for Jesus. But he had to move from boasting to humility. A recognition that he wasn't ready. See his weaknesses exposed so he could see clearly Jesus' strength. So it's the first one, moving from boasting to hum humility. The second one is moving from being self-centered to a servant. You notice in verse 33, who do you say was ready? Do you remember who's the question about? Satan demanded to sift, to separate who? All the disciples. You know what Peter didn't say? We all ready. This is my crew. These guys are good. These are my guys. What do he say? I'm ready. When Matthew recording this conversation says that Peter says this, though they all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. I don't care what those jokers do. I'm different. I'm the guy. Man, you will ruin your life constantly comparing yourself to other people. Constantly looking at yourself in a self-centered way trying to prove how much better you are than everyone else. Man, I love some of you guys in here, but you just haven't gotten past middle school yet. I don't even know you. I know some of you guys haven't gotten past middle school yet. What's middle school about? If you're a guy, it's about proving what you can do better than anyone else, right? Constantly. If it's Mario Kart, Man, you're letting everybody know you're the best Mario Kart player on the face of the planet. I'm sorry, girls, I don't know what happens in middle school. It's something weird with you. I don't want to dive into it. It's too complicated for me, all right? But I know guys, some of you guys, first year, freshman year of college, sophomore year of college, junior, you're getting ready to graduate. You know what you're still doing? Man, it's me. I'm the guy. I'm the best. I got the goods. But this unfailing faith has to move from that self-centered attitude. From a refusal to acknowledge anyone else to a servant. It's interesting, right? Verse 58, what's the second accusation? He says, you are also one of them. Not you were with Jesus. You're one of that crew of disciples. These very guys, right, that Peter already said, I'm better than those guys. Weren't you also one of them? No, I'm not with them. Can you imagine that moment for Peter? From I'm better than all these guys to I don't even know those guys. I'm not with them. And again, what we see is as Peter is going to turn back and trust Christ. That after the resurrection, he's going to have this really tender moment where Jesus reinstates him. And trust him with the kingdom to push forward this thing called the church that Peter has repented and done exactly what Jesus said. What? When you turn again, when you repent, when you trust me again, I need you to strengthen your brothers. I need you to serve them. I need you to put them first. So we move from boasting to humility. We move from self-centeredness to servant to being a servant. And then we move from being a savior to being in the need of a savior. Verse 33, I'm ready to do what? I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. In John's gospel, he says that Peter said it this way, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I'll follow you into death. I will lay down my life for you. 
Jesus, if you need me, I'm your guy. If you need somebody to die for you, I'm the guy. Verse 60, that last denial. I don't even know what you're talking about. From I will lay down my life for Jesus. So I don't even know what you mean. You got me confused with somebody else. See, Peter thought he was what Jesus needed. He thought when push came to shove, and high priests show up, higher muscles show up, when things escalate, he thought he would be the guy to lay down his life. But moving into this authentic, unfailing faith, we have to embrace this movement. Not that I'm going to die for Jesus, but that Jesus died for me in my place. That I, because of my sin, and in desperate need of a Savior, that my sin has not only separated me from God, but has built up a debt that I could never repay. That I am under condemnation because of my sin. And death is the reward that I deserve but that Jesus in his grace and mercy came, lived 33 years, lived a perfectly obedient life, and he willingly laid down his life, sacrificed himself for me on the cross. And that death is vicarious. It's a substitutionary atonement. That's Jesus paying the penalty for my sin for us in our place. And that we come to trust him or we come to be a people of faith by trusting in his death for us in our place. And then that Jesus three days later rose from the dead, defeating sin and death, guaranteeing that his people, this people of faith, these people who are trusting his sacrifice for us in our place, that we would receive new life just like he raised to a brand new life. There may be a day that some of us in this room have to lay down our life for Jesus. And in that moment, I hope you are willing. But you never get there without the prior conviction that Jesus laid down his life for you. That Jesus doesn't need you. You desperately need Does that make sense? Maybe we could say it like this. An unfailing faith is a faith that's no longer bragging about what I will do and is instead humbly looking to what Jesus has done. It's beautiful when you think about it. What Satan intended to be the utter destruction of Peter, what he intended to break apart all of the disciples, What he intended to be the end of the story was actually the beginning of Peter's faith. Jesus said, I pray you have a faith that wouldn't fail. And then, after the denial, when you turn again, when you trust me again, when you see what's about to happen, when you see the cross, when you see the resurrection, when you meet me again on the other side of death, when you see the entirety of, the th- of all that God's plan is going to be unfolded, when you see it all, that you would repent, that you would turn again and you would trust me. That you would leave behind boasting for humility. That you'd leave behind a self-centeredness to be a servant. And most of all, you would leave behind this idea that I need you, and you would embrace me as your Savior. Authentic faith arises not from braggadocious claims of what we will do for Jesus or statements about our readiness for the mission or our superiority over our brothers and sisters, nor even our extreme self-sacrifice. No, authentic faith arises from a clear understanding of our own weakness and humility and the humility of seeing clearly that we need Jesus. So, brothers and sisters, take heart. Because this isn't a story that's meant to make you feel guilty about your sin. This is meant to load you down and burden you. This is a story that's meant to give you hope. 
This is a story so that you would see clearly, yes, your sin has separated you from God. Yes, you do stand guilty before God. Yes, what you have done might be shameful, but there is hope for us, just like there was hope for Peter, and it's in this one phrase, turning again. Repenting of our sin and turning to trust Jesus. So take heart when you feel the weight of your sin. Take heart when you see the razor-sharp clarity of your own weakness. Take heart, those of you who believe you're unqualified, who would say, I'm not ready for the mission, I'm not ready to suffer, take heart. Because an unfailing faith is just a turn away. Turn in your heart to trust Christ anew. So what does that mean for us this morning? I think first and foremost, it might mean that some of us need to come and know Jesus. That some of us in this room, that we see clearly our sin has separated us from God. And maybe you grew up in a, in a church or you grew up in an environment where you think your moral achievement is going to set you right with God. Maybe you falsely believed that God needed you. And that you could string together enough good behavior in order to please Him. Or you could string together enough good deeds in, in, in order to be a, an asset to God. And maybe today is where you lay down that pride, where you see clearly your weakness and you trust Jesus and Jesus alone as your Savior. Maybe some of us are just stuck, been following Jesus for a while, but this pattern of disobedience and sin just is continuing to roll in our lives and we just feel stuck. And maybe it's because you felt sorrowful. Maybe it's because you felt alarmed. Maybe it's because you've had unbelievable feelings of guilt, but you've never actually repented. You never actually said, I am leaving that for something better. Never, you're not trusting Jesus on a daily basis. I think there's three questions, no matter what category we're in, that all of us need to ask. Here's the first one. Am I turning my heart to Christ? are wallowing in self-pity? Am I turning my heart to Jesus? Am I trusting him anew? Am I reminding myself of the gospel, that Jesus died for me in my place, or am I just continuing to wallow in self-pity? I love this little story. Spurgeon tells it. I don't know if it's true or not. I just pray that it is. He tells it about Martin Luther, and he says that Luther would often I don't know if you know this, but Martin Luther would go through extended times of depression and feel unbelievable guilt over his sin. So Spurgeon says that, that Luther recounts the story of the devil coming to him and saying, Oh, Martin Luther, you are a sinner. And Luther's response being, Yes, but Christ came to die for sinners. That's how we move from self-pity to faith. Yeah, I'm a sinner. Yeah, I denied Jesus. Yeah, I probably should have talked to that guy in physics. Yeah, what happened three weeks ago was not good. Yeah, my relationship is totally off the rails. But Jesus came to die for sinners like us. So am I wallowing in self-pity or am I turning my heart to Christ? Secondly, Am I willing to be God's provision for another person? We have no record of Jesus having this conversation with the other disciples. He may have. But what we do see clearly is he came to Peter. You remember it? Satan's going to sift all y'all. Y'all, right? And I'm praying for you. And you're going to go through this terrible experience where you're going to be shaken to your core. And you're going to deny me three times, but when you have turned again, what does Jesus tell them to do? Strengthen your brothers. Some of you have been through a really difficult semester year. Some of you have been through a really difficult marriage, a really difficult season at work. You have been sifted, shaken to the very core of who you are. And God has allowed you to endure that so you could be strengthened by him, and then, likewise, strengthen your brothers and sisters. It's community. 
what John Piper says. God broke the back of Peter's pride and self-reliance that night in the agony of Satan's sieve. But he did not let him go. He turned him around, forgave him, and restored him and strengthened his faith. And now it was Peter's mission to strengthen the other ten. Jesus provided for the ten by providing for Peter. The strengthen becomes the strengthener. And it's very possible that you've endured whatever you've had to endure so you could be strengthened by Jesus and be a source of encouragement and strength to the people around you. That's why community is so important. That's why we love missional communities. Last question. Am I proclaiming Christ's death or my own? Do I talk more about what Jesus did for me in my place or more about what I've done for Jesus? Do I talk more about who Jesus is and the transforming power in my heart and life or do I talk more about what I gave up for Jesus? Am I enthralled with his sacrifice or my own? In just a few moments, we're going to turn our attention to the Lord's table and the Lord's supper. And this is a reminder of this very thing. It's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This is our mission. I, I think You guys talk about this in the same way we do. I don't know if you saw this, right? Gospel. Am I trusting Christ? Am I wallowing in self-pity? Community. Am I, have I been strengthened by God in order to strengthen others? in mission. Whose goodness and grace am I proclaiming? Whose sacrifice am I proclaiming? Man, I believe in you guys. I love what God's doing here. I can't wait to share the Lord's table with you and proclaim Jesus' death to those who don't know in just a moment. And my prayer is that you would have an unfailing faith. Not one of perfect obedience, but one of constant repentance. Trusting Jesus anew. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you so much for your word. God, I love that your word's honest. That no matter our shortcomings, the shortcomings of people in the story, that it's in there. So we rejoice in the story about Peter. Father, not because we want to look at his failure and that some way makes us feel better, but Father, we, we see his repentance and faith and that gives us hope. So Father, for the college student, the mom or dad, grandma, granddad in this room who've never come to trust Jesus, Father, I just pray that you would speak to their heart and you draw them to the gospel. Father, for those of us in here who just can't get out of the cycle of self-pity, loathing, Father, could you speak the gospel, the truth that Jesus died for us in our place, afresh to our hearts? And can we repent and trust you again? And Father, could our proclamation be in what you have done, what your son Jesus has done for us in our place. Father, could there be no, no place for bragging among us except for in Christ and him crucified. So God, we ask in these moments that you would work, that you would use your word and the power of your spirit, speak to our hearts, transform our lives. Amen.
Please be still You are near There's nowhere we can go Where you won't shine Redemption's light Our guilt withdrawn and as you rise, we come alive. The grave has lost, the old is gone, and you're Love, it came for us. 